listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Bird. Tonight, the northern white rhino is the world's most critically endangered animal. Only two remain on the planet, a mother and a daughter. The last male died in 2018. But scientists and conservationists have new hope. They're hoping that IVF can be used to save the northern subspecies, driven to the brink by poachers who've hunted them for their horns. Find out again why there is cause for optimism all of a sudden. Have you ever watched those design shows on HGTV and said, I can do that? Well, here's your chance. HGTV star and host Scott McGilvery joins me to talk about season two of Renovation Resort and the search for four couples to take part in the competition. The CEO of Flair Airlines joins me after reports emerged today that the ultra-low-cost carrier is on the hook to the Canada Revenue Agency for $67 million. Stephen Jones says it's business as usual, a deal has been worked out with the CRA, but what will this mean for Flair and its long-term future? Two Canadians with ties to the Hells Angels have been named by the U.S. Department of Justice in a murder-for-hire plot allegedly organized in Iran by an Iranian drug baron with ties to the Iranian regime targeting an Iranian dissident living near Washington. Vancouver Sun crime reporter Kim Boland was already aware of the suspects named, including the alleged Iranian mastermind, and she joins me to tell me what she knows about this case. But first, the first of the 2018 World Junior Hockey Team players turned themselves in to police in London, Ontario over the weekend. Alex Formanton faces charges in connection with the alleged sexual assault of a woman in London in 2018. Four more players, according to reporting, are expected to do the same over the coming days. We look into the case and what could await. A lot of talk again today about a major development over the weekend into those sexual assault allegations against members of Canada's 2018 men's world junior hockey team. Former Ottawa Senator forward Alex Formanton turned himself into police in London, Ontario on Sunday morning to be formally charged in the case. His legal team did release a statement to the media saying, quote, the London police have charged several players, including Alex Formanton, in connection with an accusation made in 2018. Alex will vigorously defend his innocence and asks that people not rush to judgment without hearing all the evidence. They provided no details or specifics about what the charges were exactly. The 25-year-old, again, is one of five members of Canada's 2018 World Junior Team who's been asked to surrender to police to face charges for the alleged assaults in London, Ontario. That, according to a report last week by the Globe and Mail, The charges, you may remember, stem from an alleged group sexual assault in London in June 2018 after a Hockey Canada gala event. News of the event first broke in May of 2022 and the allegations as well after TSN reported Hockey Canada had settled a civil lawsuit with the complainant out of court. Uh, The report triggered a series of events which included renewed investigations as well as intense scrutiny focused on Hockey Canada that eventually led to the entire board and leadership team to reside. Currently, Formanton is on indefinite leave from his hockey club in Switzerland uh, for what the team said at his personal reasons. Other players from that 2018, 2018 team are also on leave right now, including Carter Hart of the Philadelphia Flyers, Michael McLeod and Cal Foote of the New Jersey Devils, and Dylan Dubé of the Calgary Flames. But only Formanton, for now, is confirmed to have been charged in this case. Well, with more on what happened yesterday, what lies ahead, is Daphne Gilbert. She's a law professor at the University of Ottawa. Daphne, thanks for your time tonight. Hello. So this was, I mean, it, it, uh, I guess for those who don't understand the process, it's always a bit strange to see people turn themselves in voluntarily. But what would have happened yesterday with this whole process with Alex Formanton and his lawyers and police? What was going on behind those doors, do you think? Well, so it's actually quite common for, for people to be asked to surrender to the police station. The idea of the sort of, you know, arrest at the 
you know, where, where people are let out with handcuffs is, is more sort of the anomaly than the usual thing, which is that people are given an opportunity to turn themselves in. And especially in this case, uh, n- none of who we think are going to be the five accused actually live in London, Ontario. In fact, they, they don't live in, in Ontario at all. So it would have taken some time for them to, to come back and, uh, and be able to make arrangements to surrender. And so that's, that in and of itself is, is not uncommon. Uh, I think what would have happened when, uh, when, he, when he surrendered was that he would have been processed, the paperwork would have been filed, he would have been fingerprinted, he would have been given a notice of his, next, a court, uh, his, his first court appearance. Uh, it, it probably would have been over fairly quickly, within, within an hour or two, really. In this case, would police have shared with his legal team any of the, I mean, any of the evidence that they have in this case? Probably not yesterday when he was turning himself in, but that will be the primary thing that happens over the next few months. So after the charges are laid, we have in Canada an obligation for the Crown Attorney to turn over all evidence that they intend to rely on in in a trial. So full disclosure is is required from the crown attorney so they will over the next few weeks and months be turning over any witness statements they've obtained any you know i i would imagine that there were search warrants for phone records and text messages and social media posts and and anything that they have gathered they will have to turn over to the defense and that will be the cause of 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 the delay between now and when the eventual trial happens is that we're going to have five teams of defense lawyers who all have to receive that disclosure and have to process it with each of these clients and and figure out you know where what, what the next steps are going to be. Watching uh, this unfold yesterday, just the scrutiny that was involved in it, the attention that was paid to what, as you pointed out, is a fairly normal and usually quite low-key way of presenting oneself to police, is a pretty clear idea, gives us a clear idea of just how much scrutiny there's going to be here. I I suspect that both um, police and and the prosecution in this case are fully aware of just how much attention is going to be paid to this and would have to have proceeded accordingly. Yeah, so, you know, we all know that this has been the subject of a lot of speculation for years. We, we, you know, the reports that something happened in 2018 have been circulating for, for many years. The London police had an initial investigation that they closed down, and it was really only after the scandal broke around the Hockey Canada settlement and, and you know, the, the sort of feeling that there was a cover-up of, of what had happened, that the London police reopened their investigation. I suspect that the initial investigation might have been quite cursory. It it may not have involved, you know, talking to to many of the witnesses who might have been in the bar, for example, that night, or players who weren't maybe directly involved in the sexual assault allegations but might have been in that hotel room that night. It, it seems to me that maybe... The initial investigation was 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 pretty superficial, and then once it became clear that this was an issue that that wasn't going to go away in terms of the public mind, the, the the police reopened it, and it seems like that that investigation was reopened in 2022. So I would assume, and I'm hoping that now that they're finally in the position where they're going to charge people, that they've dotted all the i's, crossed all the t's, and that they have what they consider to be a pretty strong case 
now that it's it's finally coming to the point of actually charging people. Because they would have been in contact, uh, I would expect, or I mean, obviously they've been in contact with the Crown throughout this process to make sure the case was in fact uh, ready for ready to, to, to arrive where it seems to have arrived now. I would assume that there's been a lot of back and forth. And also I think we, we know that these high-profile defence lawyers have also been, you know, involved for the past few months. And, and I think there's no doubt that there's been some conversation with them, certainly around the terms of the surrender of the players and, and the timing of that and then the timing of the press conference and the announcement of the charges. I'm, I'm, I think all parties are probably, you know, on notice now of the seriousness with which this is being taken. What do you make of the the fact that London police continue to sort of say, okay, we're going to hold a press conference on February the 5th? I suppose they had no plan in place really for the story to emerge in the Globe and Mail when it did, or maybe they did, but it felt like they didn't really have a plan in place for, for if and when this story broke before they hoped it would. Uh, but tell me a bit about what might happen on February 5th and why wait that long? I, I guess that's when they expect everyone to have turned themselves in. Yeah, so I'm assuming, again, you know, I don't know any more than, than what True. everyone else knows in terms of reading the Your the, expert the opinion, your expert opinion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I'm assuming that the players have been told to turn themselves in this week. They've been given a deadline by the end of the week. They've been told there's going to be a press conference where their names are going to be made public, the charges are going to be made public. So, you know, they're being given an opportunity to present themselves you know, it, it, on some sort of a schedule. And and then we also have to remember, too, that we have e- EM, the, the complainant here, who also has to be prepared for the scrutiny that is about to come to her, her life, her claims of what happened, her story. Uh, I'm sure, you know, this is a difficult week for her. And, and I'm sure that the police in part are coordinating around making sure that she has time to you know know who has come forward and and be prepared for for what is to come for her Daphne Gilbert is with us this half-hour law professor at the University of Ottawa. We're talking about the development yesterday in the sexual assault allegations against members of the 2018 Canadian men's uh, world junior hockey team. Alex Formanton, uh, the 24-year-old who now plays in Switzerland, uh, was the first to turn himself into London police on Sunday. We're talking about what happened yesterday, what happens now. Uh, There are four others, at least according to a report by the Globe and Mail, four others that are expected to turn themselves in. We haven't heard much about exactly what this entails. Uh, London police uh, continue to say They'll be holding a press conference early next week, uh, February 5th, apparently, to go into more detail. Um, Daphne, just looking at the situation around uh, the woman whose initials we know simply as EM, the, the complainant in the, in, the, in the civil case, and now, of course, um, I guess she would be part of this case as well. When someone in her situation is about to be involved in a case that's going to be so scrutinized and so high, high you know, with so much media attention, what's done uh, beforehand to try to make sure that she's prepared for this and also just to protect her, period? To be honest, there's really not much that is done. And I, I must say, first of all, that I think she's incredibly brave to be coming forward as she is. And uh, she's in for a very brutal experience if we go by by how complainants are usually treated in sexual assault cases. So a complainant in a sexual assault case is is simply another witness in the case. There is no special status for victims in our criminal justice system. You know, we have the accused and you have the Crown who represents, you know, the state and, and, and society, but 
any any victim is just simply a witness to the case. They're not entitled to have counsel at the case. They have no mechanism to to be you know sort of formally a part of the case. They're simply called upon as as a witness. Um, I I assume and I hope that she has counsel just advising her as to what she can expect from the criminal process. I would expect that the cross-examination that she's going to face from from the uh, team of lawyers for these five men is going to be very extreme. You know, many, many listeners will remember the trial of Gian Gomeshi a few years ago, which involved multiple uh, alleged victims and and the cross-examination was was very difficult and the trial was very difficult for those women. These high-profile cases bring a lot of scrutiny and uh, it's it's just really tough. But the only support she will have is the support that she has arranged for herself and and what her family and friends can, can rally around her. There's no formal support that will be given to her. What do you think this case then, I think I read an interview that you had done yesterday on this as well, that, that like so many uh, cases such as this one, that it will in fact in some senses boil down uh, to a bit of he said, she said, which is always, all, as you mentioned in any of these cases, difficult for, uh, for, the, for, the, for EM uh, specifically here. What do you think this case ultimately hinges on then? The case I think will ultimately hinge on the definition of consent that we have in our criminal code. So we have in Canada one of the best criminal law definitions of sexual assault and consent in the world, as far as I'm concerned. Our law is great, uh, and it and it imposes very strict conditions around what constitutes consent. Consent for sexual activity is in law, active, ongoing, contemporaneous consents throughout the entire sexual activity. So to me, what this issue is going to, this case is going to boil down to is, is a couple of, of things that seem apparent from what we've, what we've heard of her account, which is, first of all, that she was inebriated. So there will be a question of whether she was capable of giving consent. And our criminal code says if you're not capable of giving consent, then there's no consent. Uh, we also know in, in our criminal code that they say that the consent has to come from the parties themselves. So if one player was telling his friends that she was consenting to sexual activity with all of them, but that wasn't coming from her, then that is not consent. That, that will be a mistaken law that will not exonerate those players. Uh, you can't have what's called advanced consent. So we, you know, no one could argue that she started out in the early evening saying she was consenting to sexual activity and that that consent then could just continued on throughout the evening. Um, that, that is not, that is not acceptable in, in criminal law in Canada. There's no such thing as implied consent. So it, it has to be that she was affirmatively, enthusiastically, contemporaneously giving consent through the, the entire evening. And uh, her account does not, does not, suggest that that is what was happening. And so that will be, I think, what the trial hinges on. And I guess, Daphne, but by your description there, we also know that w- how the defense will handle that, which, which, int- which would entail, I, I, I suspect, as you pointed out earlier, a pretty, a pretty confrontational uh, a trial if, if, it, if it reaches that. Yeah. And, you know, I know one thing that, that people are talking about are these, there's a couple of alleged video clips of, of the players asking her after the fact if she was consenting and trying to get her to admit 
in a video that she was consenting. And I would just say that, you know, I think it's common sense to anyone who, who thinks about it, that, at, you know, to the extent that the players were worried after the fact that there might be an issue about whether she was consenting raises to me a lot of red flags. I wouldn't say that those sorts of videos actually work in favor of, of, of the players that evening. It suggests to me that they were pretty concerned after the fact. But, yeah, you know, I think her her problem is going to be that the defense lawyers are going to be arguing that, you know, that that she that she was there of her own volition. And I and I and that will be the the part that will be really difficult, I think, for her to have to go through. Well, Daphne, I appreciate uh, your time on this tonight. I guess we'll we'll find out more um, next week, I suspect. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's going to be a long process. Two Canadian men with ties to the Hells Angels, have been charged in what U.S. authorities are calling a murder-for-hire scheme allegedly coordinated in Iran. The U.S. Department of Justice revealed today that the two men, 43-year-old Damian Ryan and 29-year-old Adam Pearson, allegedly conspired with an Iranian national, uh, Naji Zindashi, uh, to murder two people in Maryland. The Iranian man, Naji Sharifi Zindashti, has been charged along with a pair of Canadians, one of whom is a member of Hell's Angels, with plotting to kill two people who fled to the United States. Prosecutors say both of the intended victims lived in Maryland at the time of the plot, one of whom was a defector from Iran. The Justice Department says there's a troubling trend of transnational repression in which operatives from countries including Iran and China single out dissidents and defectors for campaigns of harassment and sometimes violence. U.S. officials describe Zandashti, who is believed to still be living in Iran, as a narcotics trafficker who, at the behest of Iran, operates a criminal network that has orchestrated assassinations and kidnappings against perceived critics of the Iranian regime, including here in the United States. I'm Lisa Dwyer. It's quite the story. The U.S. has barred Zandashti and several of his key associates from transactions or deals involving American people or that take place in that country. Now, according to reporting from uh, Kim Boland, Vancouver Sun's crime reporter, Damian Ryan was already in custody in Manitoba, awaiting trial on drug smuggling and trafficking charges. He was charged in Ottawa last year on several firearms counts, while Adam Pearson was extradited from the U.S. to Alberta in July of 2021 on a murder charge dating back to 2019. Well, joining me now is Vancouver Sun crime reporter Kim Boland. She's published in the midst of publishing a great five-part series on BC crime connections to transatlantic crimes organizations. And this sort of just, Kim, welcome. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me, Ben. Yeah, this just sort of fell into so much of what you've been talking about. But I think most most Canadians would sort of scratch their heads and think, well, how could how could they be involved in this, allegedly? Well, that's right. I mean, the timing was kind of uh, remarkable when my series just finished on Saturday, and then today we have the U.S. announcing these charges, you know, in a transnational investigation involving a Canadian and involving a drug lord in Iran who formerly lived in Turkey. Uh, I covered or first heard about Zindashti back in 2018 when I investigated another international case where two young guys who were in the Brothers Keepers gang, that's a BC-born gang that is linked to the Hells Angels, they traveled over to Dubai to kill a drug trafficker there. Uh, they got into a little hit, uh, hit and run on the way back uh, to the airport. They got back to Canada and they were both murdered within a month. And that murder was plotted on behalf of Zin Dashti. So I'd heard about him then. I couldn't quite make the link between how these guys from B.C. ended up being hired for this. But now I feel like new light is shed on that other case 
because of what we learned today about BC Hells Angel Damien Ryan orchestrating a very similar plot according to the U.S. indictment. So given all that you know, where would do you think this link would have originated? How do these people know each other? Well, again, according to the research I just did in Australia, New Zealand, and Southeast Asia, uh, Canadian organized crime groups, including the Hells Angels, are working at the highest level internationally. While we see the violence on the streets of places like Vancouver between rival gangs, at the top of the food chain, the leaders of all those gangs are working together. They're cooperating so they can maximize the profits they make you know, by sending products like methamphetamine and fentanyl around the world to the highest bidders. So the Hells Angels are deeply involved in that international network. And also groups described as Middle Eastern organized crime groups are also involved. They work very closely together. They're closely connected to Mexican cartels like the Sinaloa. They're working with Asian organized crime. So these are entrepreneurs really at the highest level internationally, and there's a lot of violence associated to them on top of all the drug trafficking they're doing. So I suppose it comes as no surprise to you then that someone who is allegedly an Iranian drug lord who's there working at the behest, so say, American authorities of the Iranian government to do this uh, would, if he wanted someone assassinated in the U.S., reach out to connections here. Uh, But it's still, again, reading the headline, you think, what? How could those people possibly, how could that connection happen? And why would they engage someone like that to go do essentially what is government-sponsored assassination if this all proves to be true? Yes, no, exactly. And this does appear to have been a political assassination. You know, the target who was not named in the U.S. indictment, you know, was a recent defector and uh, they had another person with them. Fortunately, you know, they were not harmed. So that's the good news. But Zindashti is also known to take out rivals in the drug trade. So uh, the murder that, uh, you know, appears to have been done by these two younger B.C. guys who have some links to a gang connected to the Hells Angels, uh, you know, the person that they killed, uh, he was an enemy in the drug trade of Zindashti and is believed to have been behind this uh, plot that resulted in the death of Zindashti's daughter. So, you know, this is how complicated it is. Uh, this one appears to be political. Certainly the U.S. is saying he is operating on behalf of the Iranian regime, the Ministry of Intelligence and Security there, which is very frightening, you know, for the diaspora living internationally uh, that now have to fear that, you know, they could be targeted in places like Canada and the United States. But he's also just a good old-fashioned drug lord who takes targets out that have offended him somehow in the drug trade. Do we get a, did we get a sense from what the Justice Department had to say today about how this case unfolded, how they managed to track this down? Yes, it was. Uh, they clearly had um, been able to crack encrypted communications uh, where specific users of these devices, uh, known as Sky ECC, coincidentally, a company that uh, was a Vancouver-based company send, selling encrypted phones internationally to organized criminals. So they cracked uh, those phones, and they say that they um, were able to de- you know, decrypt a bunch of um, messages between the people here, uh, Zin Dashti talking directly to Damien Ryan uh, between uh, the fall of uh, 2020 and early 2021, then Damien Ryan talking uh, to allegedly Adam Richard Pearson, the guy who was going to hire the crew to actually go and commit these murders in Maryland. 
so there's a bunch of very disturbing messages back and forth that the U.S. has linked uh, directly to the people who are now facing these charges. In addition to that, there is a person in the indictment called co-conspirator number one. That person is not named in the indictment, so we don't know if that's a cooperating witness, but you know, it certainly raises the possibility that it might be. And you mentioned this in your article today when you wrote about this, because it was so interesting that this came out from the Justice Department. You're thinking, what could that be? And of course, you've done all this work on it in the past. Where are these two Canadians at this point? You mentioned that they're both behind bars. They are. Damien Ryan uh, was arrested two years ago in Ottawa. Coincidentally, he was living in a house linked to another a Canadian criminal named Robbie Al-Khalil. Al-Khalil is a member, like Ryan, of the Wolfpack Gang Alliance. And uh, Al-Khalil is convicted of one of two murders now. But when he was convicted of just one murder and on trial for the second, he escaped from jail in B.C. People will remember that. It was very high profile, very disturbing. And he is now operating internationally somewhere. We don't know. So, again, you look at these international connections, you know, is it through Robbie Al-Khalil uh, that Damien was able to make this connection with uh, Zindashti? We don't know that. Uh, so Ryan is facing charges, as, you know, basically being the leader of this drug smuggling operation that was centered in Manitoba. Uh, he, when he was arrested in Ottawa, police found a number of firearms, so he's facing charges there. I don't know the status of when his case is coming up. I did try to get that information confirmed today, but without much luck. And meanwhile, Adam Pearson was living in the United States in uh, Minnesota when this plot unfolded, and he was wanted in Alberta for a 2019 murder in Grand Prairie. So he was apparently living under a fake name in the United States, but obviously they were tapping into this plot through these encrypted messages and uh, he was actually sent back to Canada in July of 2021, uh, you know, on this outstanding murder charge. So he is currently awaiting trial as well. It's hard to, to put into words exactly what this implies, because if you were, you know, clearly, you know, the Americans as well as Canadians, we've been talking a lot about foreign interference and so on. Uh, there was obviously the case of, of the Sikh leader uh, in, in Vancouver earlier, earlier well, midway through last year. But this gives a whole new dimension to the idea of what this threat looks like if, in fact, people within the Iranian regime are hiring gangsters off the streets of Canada who they have connections through through some other way to carry out these sorts of these sorts of assassinations i mean it does add a whole different scope to what we've been talking about well, it certainly does. It's very disturbing, and it's something that the Canadian government's going to have to take a close look at. But, I mean, having covered gangs and organized crime for a long time here in B.C., you know, there are always people willing to go and do atrocious things, like murder someone they don't know for a price. We've seen this, but generally it was, you know, one gangster taking out another gangster. Uh, but, we've, you know, hitmen for hire in B.C. has been a thing for the last several years. So it doesn't surprise me at that level that the gang hitmen are willing to go and kill someone. They don't care whether it's political or whether it's a rival drug trafficker. Having said that, you know, the fact that, you know, regimes around the world that are facing sanctions in places like Canada and the United States are willing to hire our criminals is really, really disturbing. 
Vancouver Sun Crime reporter Kim Boland is with us this half hour. We're talking about uh, news today from the U.S. Department of Justice. The two Canadian men with ties to Hells Angels have been charged in the U.S. with what authorities there are calling a murder-for-hire scheme allegedly coordinated in Iran. Uh, they say that 43-year-old Damien Ryan and 29-year-old Adam Pearson allegedly conspired with an Iranian national known to be a drug lord, uh, Naji Sharifi Zindashti, to murder two people in Maryland, including an Iranian dissident. Uh, uh, Zindashti uh, apparently has ties to the Iranian regime, even though he operates uh, very much in the criminal world as well. Kim has also just come back from an extensive trip uh, overseas to Australia, other parts, New Zealand, other parts of Southeast Asia, to look at just at the at how BC organized crime has its tentacles around the world. This, of course, an example of that that came out today. And uh, Kim, just reading through the articles, it was it was remarkable what you found because I don't think people really understood just how much coordination and cooperation is going on overseas. Now, I guess money talks, right? Yeah, that was really eye-opening for me. I mean, obviously, I knew through just covering local stories, you see these kind of international links, but, you know, you're sitting in Vancouver at your desk and you're not able to really follow them beyond making a few calls. So I did get this wonderful opportunity to travel for over six weeks uh, to these countries where I could interview experts, law enforcement, people directly impacted uh, by some of the drugs that are arriving there, and just learned uh, so much about how Canada has major international players in the drug trade operating on Canadian soil, but working very closely with their international counterparts. I was kind of tracking some of the record shipments of methamphetamine, more than six tons uh, over the last year, sent through the port of Vancouver, and they were fortunately intercepted in shipping containers, uh, and they were destined for Australia and New Zealand. You know, very sophisticated, uh, you know, processed as fake canola oil and maple syrup, and, um, you know, very close cooperation between the Canada Border Services Agency and its international counterparts. But while there are charges laid in those countries, no one is uh, charged in Canada in connection with any of these record shipments. So, you know, I found that interesting. I tried to learn more and I tried to figure out why that is going on. Yeah. One thing that I was surprised by was just, first of all, how much more uh, expensive, how much more the profit margin is in a place like Australia and New Zealand. I guess it makes sense, given uh, given the fact that they're islands and they're, and they're isolated. Uh, but just how much a, a place like Canada serves the purposes of something like a Mexican cartel to be able to get those shipments out just because of how much cargo leaves here that is legit. Well, that's right. And, you know, we, we know there's been a recent report done for the city of Delta about concerns over the port. Uh, you know, there, we have a problem with trusted insiders, as they're called. This was also determined, uh, you know, through a number of international investigations in which the Australian Federal Police were involved. And these are people who work at the port or work at shipping companies who are able to kind of make sure uh, that illicit product is concealed and doesn't get um, searched or investigated in any way. So there's a big problem with trusted insiders. Of course, we have no police uh, on site at any of our uh, federal ports in Canada. That's a big issue that some politicians want addressed. Uh, but yeah, we're deeply involved in this uh, drug trade. Uh, we work really closely with all these organizations. And, you know, some argue that Canada has become a bit of a safe haven uh, for some of the worst uh, criminals in the world. Yeah, that, that, I was curious to see, because I know you mentioned quite specifically that uh, that a lot of the law enforcement officials you spoke to overseas talk about their coordination and cooperation with authorities here. But I was wondering, underlying that, is there a sense that Canada's a little bit lax here? 
Well, no one's going to say that on the record, right? But I did hear, for example, that when the leader of this criminal network called Sam Gore that was uh, making at its peak $18 billion a year from moving methamphetamine uh, from Myanmar, from places like Mexico through Canada into Australia and New Zealand, when their Canadian leader, Say Chai Lop, was arrested a few years ago in Europe, he was en route to Canada. He has Canadian citizenship, and there was some fear that if he had been allowed to get back into Canada, they would have had a much tougher time extraditing him to Australia. He did get extradited from the Netherlands uh, just over a year ago, and he's awaiting trial there in Melbourne. So that'll be an interesting case. What I was able to determine on this trip through my investigations is that another BC man named Kam Le Wong Uh, is essentially the right-hand man of the Say Chai Lop. And he's from B.C. He's closely affiliated with the United Nations gang, which people in B.C. will be familiar with. It's a B.C.-born gang that's uh, been caught up in a lot of the violence on the streets here. Uh, So, you know, here's another B.C. player who's operating at the international level. He's currently not facing any charges, uh, Kam Lo Wong, uh, but charges against him were stayed a couple of years ago here in B.C., Charges in the U.S. were dropped because he was a fugitive for over 10 years, and he was also charged in Thailand, but kind of disappeared before a trial was held. So, you know, again, these significant players that have these Canadian connections. If we take into consideration what we learned today about these charges coming out of the U.S. involving two other Canadians, what do you take away then? I mean, this is a, this is a, a far too, we have far too little time, but for uh, given your five part series and this, what have you walked away with? It sounds like sounds like we need to be doing more, or at least we're not fully aware of exactly what's happening around us. Well, I learned a lot, you know, and I, I don't I understand that Canadians are focused on what's there in front of them. I mean, we have this toxic drug crisis that's led to thousands of deaths every year. People are focused on that. They're focused on the gang violence. Uh, We see so many young people losing their lives uh, due to this gun violence. So it's hard to focus on what else is happening internationally. And it's one reason I wanted to do this trip and, and learn and write about these topics, right? But we do, I think, need more of a national focus on these transnational organized crime links that Canada has. You know, we've got the forum coming up in Ottawa uh, in about 10 days related to the stolen vehicles that are being shipped out of the port to places like Africa. There's been some excellent journalism that the CBC and others have done on that topic. Uh, But really, it seems, you know, not the most effective way to look at one product, uh, you know, that's being used or that organized crime is profiting off of, like, the vehicles without looking at all this other stuff that's going on. Uh, So I think we need maybe a broader approach there. Well, Kim, as always, thank you so much. My pleasure. Here was a story that emerged today that I'm sure Flair didn't want to see because it's actually not new. It's something that happened back in November, but uh, the Globe and Mail today was reporting that Flair Airlines, according to court documents, owes uh, the taxman, Ottawa, the tax person, $67 million in unpaid taxes, prompting the federal government to obtain an order for the seizure and sale of the carrier's property. Now, that sounds very, very extreme, doesn't it? Now, of course, in these cases, what the CRA really wants is they want their money back, right? So um, the ruling was issued by the Federal Court of Canada back on November the 23rd. So we're going back more than two months now. After, uh, after, And that 
that came months after a leasing company repossessed four of Flair's aircraft for missed rent payments, as we were, I was talking about earlier. So what does this mean? Um, the discount airline owes the Canada Revenue Agency uh, $67,174,123.37 plus penalties, interest, and other fees. Uh, now, apparently, they have come up with a way, an agreement with the Canada Revenue Agency to pay this back or to at least an agreement on how they're going to pay this back. Um now, again, as I was mentioning, in March 2023, an aircraft leasing company repossessed four of Flair's Boeing 737 planes for non-payment of rent. Flair's fighting that seizure in the courts. Aviation expert Duncan D says the unpaid import duties on Flair's 20 Boeing 737 MAX jetliners combined with the seizure of those four planes last March suggest a precarious financial situation amid rising competition. And I think the picture that it paints is one where Flair faces much more significant challenges than what would appear on the surface. Blair is in a, in a tough spot. Right. Uh, Duncan D. there. The CRA typically works, as I mentioned, with companies to resolve tax issues and may resort to legal actions such as seizing assets as a last resort uh, to protect government interests. So we thought we would ask uh, Flair's CEO if he wanted to join us and tell us what's going on. Uh, and he said, yes, Stephen Jones, CEO of Flair Airlines, joins me now. Stephen, thank you for your time tonight. Great to be with you. You know, most um, consumers of media and social media will see a headline and then move on. Uh, what's going on here with the Canada Revenue Agency? Uh, yes, look, first thing what I want to make clear is that there is no way that the CRA is going to seize and sell our assets. It's a very um, uh, attention-grabbing headline, as you say, um, sensationalist, uh, and certainly um, sells stories, but it's not what's happening. Right. Um, what is happening is that we do have an amount outstanding with the CRA. Um, we have a very clear agreement with them around the repayment terms for that amount, um, and we're current with that plan. Right. So in this case, um, is is are the figures correct? Are the figures correct? Yes, they are. Yes, okay. They are. Yeah. How does how does and, and this has to do with the importation of those main aircraft that you use? Obviously, the, the bulk of your fleet. Yeah, and and look, I accept it looks like a big number, and, and it is a big number. But the airline industry deals in big numbers every day. So every one of our aircraft is fifty million US dollars. Um, as we import those aircraft into the country, it generates an importation duty that's payable, um, and it's that that this amount relates to. So we have billions of dollars of aircraft, and so while it seems a big number, it's um, it's an industry of big numbers. Right. How does this work then with the CRA when it comes to these sorts of numbers? They clearly the CRA doesn't want to drive people out of business, right? But how does it how does it work with a company such as yours? Uh, Look, they've been really clear that they are interested in finding solutions that are satisfactory for both parties. That's their philosophy generally when um, uh, when chasing amounts that are in arrears. Uh, and that's the, that's the approach they've taken with us. And so we've agreed a monthly payment that we will um, we will make to them. It's a chunky monthly payment. Um, and, uh, and we've been making that. We're absolutely current with our, our payments with them. How does this um, how does this impact the bottom line? For you? I mean, has anything been seized yet? Have they have they seized anything? No, and it's not no? going to be. Right, it's not going to be. There's been nothing seized. There's nothing going to be seized. Um, it's really simply that language is. Um, it seems uh, you know dramatic, but it's a backstop arrangement that the CRA put in place in situations like ours right. to ensure that if you know the worst came to the worst, they had some right to to recover their money, but. They're going to recover their money through us being a, a successful airline and um, and uh, repaying the uh, the arrears. Right. 
I guess what 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 happens here, unfortunately, is, is is the headline itself plays into last year's incident with the with the four aircraft, right? So perhaps that that's what uh, that's what's led people to ask questions again today, right? Yeah, but completely separate issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, as you know, uh, we're still contesting the um, what we consider to be illegal action taken in March of last year around the seizure of our aircraft. Uh, we've got a fifty million dollar lawsuit against the people that seized those aircraft. Um, that's working its way through the courts, and we look forward to um, having our day in court. Uh, but this is something completely separate from that, right? I, I just mean in terms of the of the headlines, right? What what the average oh, yeah. person sees as they go by. You know, this is the this is the news out there. Uh, otherwise, I mean, it, how's the recovery been? Because when we spoke, obviously in March of 2023, when I spoke with another member of your senior executive team, I mean, the the, the recovery was beginning, and now it feels like, of course, demand is way up. But then again, um, you know, people are very price sensitive these days. Well, they are. And so, I mean, we had a, a tremendous uh, summer last year, let's say April till October, November. We were running uh, on average 90% full aircraft through that time. We had the best completion rate of any airline in Canada and the second best on-time performance. So, you know, the airline is really starting to mature now and become a, a very, um, you know, stable and important part of the Canadian aviation landscape. So, you know, we've got, uh, say, 90% load factors on average across all of our flights. Right. Of course, I mean, you know, with the, with the newer airlines such as yours, customer confidence is always an important part. Um, th- these issues, I mean, even if it is a non-issue with the CRA, it, it's still something that lies out there to be discovered. I mean, that must in some way, you probably want to avoid those sorts of things in the future, just in case people get the wrong impression, wouldn't you think? Uh, look, I would. I would also note that this has been around since November. True. Um, so the arrangement was in place uh, since November. Well, actually, the arrangement predates November, but the um, the notice that is referred to in the in today's media was put in place in November. It's a public document. It's just been discovered today, discovered um, and picked up on and run with. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, these are not headlines that we want, but they actually very misleading, and I think in some ways are responsible um, in the way of the people that have reported it in that way because. Um, it's actually not the truth, and it and it sort of makes customers concerned when they don't need to be. Right. I mean, I think the, I think the substance of the article was probably correct. Headlines are headlines, though, right? The headlines That's sort right. of very very splashy. Um, so your word, your message then to to potential Flare customers is that all is operating uh, as as normal despite this. One hundred percent, and one hundred percent, it has done. You know, the, as I say, the notice went in place. Two months ago, we've been running like a Swiss watch since then. And so it's um, it's uh, there's nothing here that impacts the operation or customers um, whatsoever. Tell me a bit about how it's been then since uh, over the past while, because as you well know, there have been many airlines that have tried to get off the ground in this country. It's difficult. It's a tough market. Uh, how has Flair found it so far? I mean, this is this is part of it, but how has Flair found the whole atmosphere around it, whether it be the co- the media coverage, uh, the understanding of, of the budget airline industry in this country. Um, how how has it been trying to get a discount airline off the ground in Canada? Because there's demand for it, but it seems year after, you know, time after time, it just hasn't worked out. Yeah, so there absolutely is demand. And, you know, this I've always been encountering this thing that Canada's different. For some reason, low-cost carriers just don't work here. Well, I I don't buy that for a second. You know, I think people love to travel and they love a deal and Canadians are no different in that respect. And so it has been tough because, 
the established, um, you know, duopoly has enjoyed 20 years of, of, you know, controlling the market. And so when someone like us, a challenger brand, comes in and tries to upset the party a little bit, um, of course, the forces of of the status quo will, will wrap around and try and, and squash us. But uh, we're really clear in our purpose. And I think the thing that sets us apart from those that have tried before is that we are a pure ULCC. We're not drifting off into being some kind of hybrid thing. That it's We're a pure ultra-low-cost carrier. If we could emulate, you know, Ryanair, Wizz Air, Frontier, Spirit, these are all good airlines um, that Canadians just haven't had the experience of. And so part of our job actually is, is educating Canadians about, you know, what affordable travel feels like and the spontaneity that that can bring. Stephen Jones, the CEO of Flair Airlines, is with us. You may have seen headlines today about an agreement uh, that Flair reached with the Canada Revenue Agency back in November, about uh, about $67 million in unpaid taxes. We've been asking about that. There is a plan in place, of course, to, uh, to reimburse that sum. And uh, all is... You know, things are business as usual at Flair, but it's always an interesting thing to talk to not only these issues, but also uh, issues around discount airlines in this country uh, more generally. What have the challenges been then so far for uh, for you? Because obviously I'm, I'm, I'm out west, so I see you. I see your flights and I see people getting on your flights and so on and so forth. But uh, but it's it's obviously in this country difficult to build consumer confidence as well. It's one flight at a time, I suspect. Yeah, absolutely. And it becomes a bit of word of mouth. So we've got really strong um, loyalty from uh, new Canadian communities where who have actually come from countries where the URCC business model is, is much more accepted. And so um, we get that, we get them talking and then just travelling more. I fly a lot with Flair myself and um, the anecdotes of the travellers on board, you know, I would not have been able to take this trip if it weren't for you, uh, is, is really heartwarming and, and fantastic. Right. The um, and just in terms of the growing pains, though, what what have been the challenges? Then is it? Uh, I mean, obviously, you, you can't. You don't have the same reach that a, a you know a major airline has, and being able to have aircraft mm-hmm. all over the place. So I suspect if anything goes wrong, whether it be weather wise and so on, I mean that's one of the beauties of of low cost airlines in other parts of the world. They you know they don't have the kind of winters we have here, right? Well, they do. Um, so do I spent the last three years in, in um, Europe and, you know, you go try staying in, in you know, northern uh, Poland uh, in the winter as well. It gets pretty cold there. And so they do. Every country's got its own nuances and challenges. Here, I think um, the fact that we've grown so quickly has meant that, yeah, we've got to put in place the systems and processes and get the people to manage that growth. And you don't just go from, you know, zero to 20 aircraft uh, without, you know, learning a few lessons and taking a few bumps along the way. And we've been doing that. But for me, I think it's been more important to get moving quickly than be perfect. And, you know, we have had our our mistakes and I apologize to people that have been on the wrong end of those, but we've created something here. We're building a business in Canada. Tell me a bit about the flare effect. Is it still in effect? Uh, I notice your competitors are sort of jacking up prices quite liberally these days. So uh, what's been going on with that? So the flare effect is the fact that people benefit from flares existence, not just being able to get on a flare flight, but by the fact that we're in the market fighting. And when we're in the market fighting, it forces all of the other carriers to bring their prices down to the levels that we set. And so you see that. I mean, look at the prices that each of our big competitors are charging today relative to what they charged in 2019 for a two-hour flight. You know, it's just used to be $800 to fly from Vancouver to Calgary. It's now 150 
And so it's that, that's the flare effect. We've delivered more than $400 million in benefits to Canadians over the past year. And I think that's um, sometimes people lose sight of that, that affordability is such an important topic at the moment in the country. Um, and FLIR is actually bringing the cost of travel down across the board. Stephen, do you think you'll be able to make a go of it, though, when one sees the, you know, the unpaid taxes issue? Obviously, I mean, that's a lot of money compared to your revenue, I understand. Uh, I think people don't necessarily want to see you fail, but worry that it's not going to work out yet again. And and when they see articles such as this, it sort of reinforces that notion that may already be there that, you know, low-cost airlines never work out in this country. Yeah, so we've got 1,250 people employed by Flair that are determined every day to make this a success. You know, every fibre of every person on our team wants us to be successful. And so I think the the belief that comes through that um, is going to be what sets us apart. You know, we've got a great team. Um, our customers, we've got some real loyalty amongst some of our customers as well. So um, I think this is going to work. And, and uh, cause, you know, this will be an important part of aviation in Canada, um, you know, for the foreseeable future. We're not Steve- going back to the days of the duopoly. Stephen, thank you as always. My pleasure. Well, this time, this time last year, we had popular HGTV host and real estate expert Scott McGilvery on the show to talk about a brand new series he was co-hosting with fellow HGTV star and sometimes antagonist Brian Baumler called Renovation Resort. The catch for this show was that Brian and Scott wouldn't be doing the heavy lifting. Instead, they'd be judging. Uh, They took a piece of lakefront property between Toronto and Kingston, uh, north of the 401, tore down the existing but dilapidated cabins, built four identical new ones, and then invited four couples, two from the U.S., two from Canada, to compete to see who could come up with the best design while sticking to a $100,000 budget. Canadian, by the way. Here's a reminder. And now, an HGTV sneak peek of Renovation Resort. I'm Scott McGilvery. And I'm taking on one of my biggest real estate investment projects ever. I'm transforming this 100-year-old lakeside resort into a modern-day vacation destination. This is the worst. So in an unprecedented move, I'm teaming up with... Brian. He knows a thing or two about renovating resorts. I don't know how you tricked me into this one. We're tearing down and rebuilding the rental cabins. You're being very judgy. Well, that's my title to set the stage for one of the biggest real estate competitions ever. We're bringing in four designer contractor teams from across North America. They have just seven weeks to transform their cabin room by room to win a prize of $100,000. Brian and I are judging. The champion of the renovation resort is... You'll pay for this, bomber! Ah, uh, there you have it. I won't give away who won because you can watch it. I'll give you a hint, though. We haven't won a cup in 30 years, but we did win Renovation Resort season win. Canada did, at least. Uh, well, guess what? They're going to make a second season of the show, and they're on the hunt for four new couples to take part uh, in the Chorus Studios original competition series. Each pair, made up of a designer and renovator, will compete in the new season to fully renovate and redesign rental properties for that grand prize of $100,000. All you need is a flair for creativity, an eye for design, and a knack for transforming spaces. Production begins this summer. In Ontario, uh, you can have a look at hgtv.ca, casting call to apply. But we thought we'd talk to Scott, not only about this, but he has Scott's Vacation House Rules has a new season coming out as well. Uh, Scott McGillivray, host of HGTV Canada, Scott Vacation, Scott's Vacation House Rules, and 
about to be the season two of Renovation Resort joins me now. Scott, welcome back. Thank you. Happy belated New Year, Ben. How are you? Good, good. A bit. Well, you're as always. You're busy, right? So, uh, so we, we have Renovation Resort coming up uh, this year. I, obviously, season one was a big success. So, this is uh, for for listeners who may not remember the concept. You don't do the building here. You do the tearing down, but other people are responsible for uh, for doing a lot of the heavy lifting after that. Yeah, this this one is a, a bit of a departure for sure from what I'm used to doing, which is getting my hands dirty in every single episode. But it doesn't mean that there isn't some work to be done. And Brian and I somehow agreed to collaborate together again. And uh, and Renovation Resort is really it's really about finding new talent, right? It's about finding people across this country who have got great ideas, great skills, showcasing them on the show. You know, giving out a game changing prize, hundred thousand dollars for you know being the best at what you do. That's something that Brian and I have in common. Believe it or not, is that we are always looking for new talented individuals, whether it's within our businesses or even for new shows. I think the the audience across Canada and the U.S. are hungry for uh, for new ideas and different people to present them to them. So this show really is a good platform for talented renovators and designers all across the country to really come and prove that they have the skills. For listeners who might not have seen season one, it uh, it sort of began with these old kind of dilapidated looking cabins in a really beautiful part of the country, uh, Campbellford on the Trent Canal, which is kind of midway between Toronto and Kingston, a nice, nice part of the country. So you tear down the cottages, put four identical new ones up, and then the four couples come in and they had to basically build them from there or de- decorate them from there. And it, w- it was interesting watching the show how different, uh, I mean, th- there was only so di- so much difference there could be, but how different each one was considering. Considering we wanted to keep it equitable, right? That's why we started with four shells, all identical. And then we let them take it from kind of, you know, uh, drywall stage to final finishes. So they came, some of them came in, moved bathrooms around and opened, did more open concepts and converted bedrooms to other things. But the amount of work that they had to do in a short period of time, oh, that was tough. Like this year we've learned, we're like, you cannot, it was so hard to, to have everybody working in such a condensed amount of time. It was like, 32 days straight of, of working. It's, uh, which is great. It's great to get it all done fast, but, uh, you want to get it done well as well. So this year we've given a little more flexibility on the timeline. It's still, it's still really tight, but these are bigger projects. Another incredible site. This one is, is even more intense in terms of it's more like a resort style community. I call it because there's, there's more to come with this property, but, uh, this will be a big one for anyone who's interested in the field of design and renovation and real estate investing. Like this is the place to be. Wow. It's it's amazing. You keep finding these gems, these diamonds in the rough, so to speak, because last year, I guess it was Rodham and Troy who won. They were a Toronto couple. There were four couples on the show, two from, two from Toronto and two from the U S which was a really interesting. This is open. If you're listening in the U S this is open to you too, uh, by the way. But yeah, I was, I think you started off the show by saying rental season's coming up in seven weeks, get going. And I thought that's not a lot of time. That was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> but made for good TV, <laughs> made for good TV. Yeah, cutting it close, timelines. It is one of the, I think it's the first show where, first renovation show, HGTV show, where it's it's North America wide. So right. 
And it was amazing to see the response and even just to be able to bring in the variety. You know, you got a couple from Texas, you've got another couple from Toronto and you got Chicago. Like to see, one of the reasons we're talking today is because I would love to see West Coast Canada represent this year. That was something that was missing for me. There's Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, Victoria, you know, even Saskatchewan, Manitoba. I would love to see uh, competitors from one of those provinces really come in and blow people's minds. Yeah. If you've ever sat watching one of these shows thinking, I could do that and this this is your chance. I I know you don't want to you don't want people sneaking in and and looking at this property before you actually bring them on for this. But what can you say? You, You said it's even might be even a bigger diamond in the rough than last year's. Yeah, this is a property that has really been, it it was really kind of left to its own devices for a long time. 2,000 feet of shoreline on this property, like it's massive and really an opportunity to do just about anything. Lots of privacy. Um, We're putting in a road right now to where we want to put these new locations Good access across the water is all crown land. So like you'll never have any development around it. It really is a a magical spot. So I am excited for the location this year. I can't tell you much. I can't tell you where it is because you know what? It really does become it, it become a bit of a parade of cars that come to check it out. But we've got this site pretty secured for what we're doing right now, which is great. And if you uh, if you decide to join up and you're chosen, you get to hang with Scott and Brian Baumler. Of course, a bunch of guest uh, guest judges came in as well. So it's uh, you get to sort of do the, run the gamut of all the people you watch on HGTV that you might love and respect, so to speak. Absolutely, yeah. We plan on bringing in uh, more guest judges this year. We got a few surprises. It's a bigger show, more episodes. Season one is is really hard to do a season one because everything's new. We're learning as we go. We plan as best we can. But now this, you know, the format exists. People know what it is. You know, you've got that loyalty to the show. You've got more interest in terms of talent. Trying to get people to do a season one when they don't know anything about it. It's like this random, hey, do you want to be part of a random new show that we can't tell you anything about? And we can't tell you what it's called, where it is, or what talent is attached to it. At least now it's like, all right. You know that you've got myself there, some great guest judges. You'll have to put up with Brian for a little bit, which is fine. It's manageable in small doses. <laughs> and whether you win or not, I say that look, winning is great. And I know everybody wants to win 100 grand because that can change your life. Um, but the calling card that this creates for your career is is beyond measurable. It's beyond that prize could ever be worth because you basically have um, you have a brand and you've got visibility. You could never pay to get that much marketing for a small business uh, where you're in the design and renovation space. So even just being part of the show and being able to get that big of an audience, it it's rocket fuel to any business model in the space. Right. And you can go, if you want to know more information about this, I guess you go to hgtv.ca or hgtv.com, right? You'll see... Uh, HGTV.ca is where we're is where anyone in Canada can apply. Uh, if you're in the U.S., 
you can apply. You have to get to hgtv.ca to apply. Right. Yes. So you have to go through the Canadian website, HGTV, right. and, and all the all the criteria are there as well. It's uh, you have to be available for filming in Southern Ontario. That's all it says for eight weeks mm-hmm. from July to October. What happened with the previous ones? Because I know they were being put up for rent. How was the? Uh, that was the whole point of, of getting the rush on for the summer of yeah. 2023. How did it work out? Pretty good. Uh, it was a really interesting summer. So even after the show. You know, real life. Here's the real life story. What happened after filming? There was still a lot of work to do. Of course. Like, it's like, okay, great. Now we need toilet paper and we need dishes and we need cleaners and we need vacuums and like all the things that you don't see in the show. And we have a team that came in for a couple of weeks after the show to get them like turnkey ready we, they were show ready with the with the teams there but then we had to get them turnkey ready even if there was a few deficiencies as we pointed out on the show i'm like don't like the way that works don't like the way that works we've got to fix that uh but we were able to get the tail end of the season which was great um and then this summer was a solid summer for those properties um, lots of people interested, you know, to be able to hang out in one of those after seeing them on the show for a week, I think was was great for people. And they're all listed on stay.co. So if you go online, you can go to stay.co and you can still rent the properties. They're starting to rent out. We've got weddings and all kinds of oh, stuff awesome. this summer. Yeah, interesting. I think, you know, so on the show, you saw the four and then Brian and I were working on the fifth. There's actually three other cottages that weren't on the show that after the show was done, we finished building those as well. So there's, you know, uh, there's seven or eight spots that, that are rentable on that property. So there's a couple weddings, some family reunions, some people come in, they'll rent all the cabins for a whole week. The original owner's family contacted us after the show and said that was the we're the original family, like seven generations later, and they had sold it off in like the 1950s. So this is the spot. This was an originally a loggers camp back in the 1800s. And then after that, some of those people kept coming back because they would fish at this spot and hunt from this spot. And then it became more of a family style place in the early to mid 1900s. And that resort got run down from like the 1940s up till the early 2000s. And by the time we got it, it was some of those cabins had sunken into the ground. Oh, yeah. three they, didn't, feet. they didn't look good. They didn't look good. No, but an amazing spot. Like what a you know, what an incredible spot and so much history there. Welcome back. <laughs> you might not recognize the place. You got a walkway now. Beautiful. Oh, my God. Love it. The curb appeal on this property, which is the first thing guests will see when they arrive, is top notch. Doesn't even look like the same house. I can't believe it. Oh, my God. <laughs> you can see right to the this water. Is amazing. Wow. wow look at these huge lights. island. This is amazing. This is so amazing. <laughs> this is really different than what you had here. Scott McGilvery, host of HGTV Canada's Scott's Vacation House Rules, Renovation Resort, and many others is with us this half hour. Uh, you know, I can't believe you're already at season five of Vacation House Rules, because I, I remember watching season one and it didn't feel that long ago. But here we are, season five already. Don't forget, you were locked up at home for like three seasons of that <laughs> true, show. True enough. True <laughs> enough. T- t- time, time took on a whole new meaning when that show was on I'm in its good. early years. Yes. It's such a fun show. We love doing Vacation House Rules. It gives people some a bit of an escape as well. It's like great ideas plus, oh, how nice would it be to go on a holiday right now? So 
um, yeah, we're in the middle of uh, of shooting more episodes of that, which will air in the spring. Awesome. And Deborah's back with you, obviously. You and Brian have your relationship. You and Deborah, though, have been working together for quite a while now. It's it's a great chemistry that you have on that show. It is. I say that we're like siblings. We feel like I've known her my whole life. We've we have a ton of fun together. I remember asking her to do the show, and she's like, "I don't know what. What do you mean do the show? What am I supposed to do?" I'm like, "Just do what you do." That's all that I ask. It just be great at the design and just don't worry about the TV show. Just have fun. Like, let's have a good time. I've been do I've been doing TV shows for 18 years. I'm going to have fun at this point. Right. Don't take it too seriously. And uh, and so we do have a blast. We love having a good time. It's like hanging out with family when we're on set. So super fortunate to be able to have someone like that to work with every day because it could be a lot. I could be working with Brian every day and then. Think about what type of life that would be. Uh, yeah, that's sibling-like too, but, but a little bit different. That's the other brother. That's the he other brother. He's the brother we don't get along with. Uh, has anything changed? I mean, there's been so much talk about supply chains and then getting better. And then, of course, there's the whole inflation, interest rates, and so on. How's that How's that turning up for you when just, just with what people are looking to do, what you're able to do? I guess you both have access to more stuff, but also have to be uh, cost-conscious as well, as you always are. But uh, dynamics have changed a bit since the show first started back in 2020. It is. I would say that, you know, I've been in the real estate investing and renovation space since 1999. Between 2020 and 2023 is the biggest disruption I've seen between inflation and supply chain and labor. There's been a slow progression for 20 years of um, lack of trades in the space. But it's like, you know, the amount of skilled trades, people in the skilled trades has been going down and the demand for housing has been going up. And we've passed this tipping point where, you know, it's really hard to find the good quality people to do the work who want to do the work uh, at an affordable rate and be able to get the materials and the timelines. It's been a real struggle for sure. But I think that we are kind of at the tail end of this weird timing, and it feels like we're finally getting into a new groove, which is a big opportunity for people that want to get into the real estate investing space or the renovation space, even first-time home buyers. I think there's a window of opportunity happening right here. They should be paying attention because long-term, long-term, I think it's going to always be more difficult. But right now, we're, there's a bit of confusion in the market. So it might be a good time for people to consider, you know, what their opportunities are. Well, Scott, it's always a pleasure. Uh, good luck with uh, the search for those four couples for a renovation resort uh, coming up. Uh, I guess that starts filming of that starts in the in the summer through to the fall. And then, of course, so uh, we look forward to Scott's Vacation House Rules season five uh, starting off in the spring on HGTV. As always, thanks. Thanks so much, Ben. Talk to you soon. Members of Parliament returned to Ottawa on Monday as Parliament resumed for the winter session. As you can imagine, all parties are crawling over each other to convince us that they're doing all they can to tackle all of those top-of-mind concerns around the cost of living, housing, the impact of interest rates, and so on. The Liberal government tried to get a jump on the news cycle today by announcing steps to deal with the strain on the local housing market brought on by the lack of housing for post-secondary students, international students particularly, we've been talking about quite a bit of late. Uh, Post-secondary institutions will now be able to apply for low-interest loans to build student housing starting in the fall. There's been a big lack of student housing on campus, obviously. Here is Housing Minister Sean Frazier. 
Today, we're pleased to share that we're extending access to student residences to the Apartment Construction Loan Program. This is a program that provides low-cost financing through the federal government to help build the kinds of homes that we need at prices that people can actually afford. Right. So that sounds like it makes uh, some sort of sense, doesn't it? Of course, it won't be in place in time. Uh, they won't be building these things by the time the next election rolls around. So uh, this government's going to have to hope that some of what they're promising here isn't too little too late. The Conservatives, meanwhile, came into the day vowing to fight throughout this session, as Pierre Polyev said yesterday, to axe the tax, build the homes, fix the budget, and stop the crime. Uh, Sounds sounds logical, I suppose. I don't know what parts of it. I don't know how you fix the budget or stop the crime if you're the prime minister. I don't think that's exactly uh, all up to you. But anyway, the leader of the opposition kicked off the new session of Parliament's question period uh, by going after the prime minister for his Christmas vacation in Jamaica. He took two, not one, but two private jets paid for by the taxpayer, uh, burning a hundred tons of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. He wants to tax the heat and the food of Canadians. Did he pay the full carbon tax on each of the 100 tons of emissions that he put into the atmosphere as part of his $80,000 vacation? The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Speaker, the Conservative leader has simply no plan to address climate change in this country, no plan to increase the resilience of our communities in the fight against climate change. Warming climate causes droughts. Droughts damage crops. Damage crops increase the food of gro- the cost of groceries. And yet, the Conservative Party cannot even agree on whether or not climate change is real. Now, I would imagine, imagine that you can just take that one little exchange that was about a minute long, and that's what they'll be talking about for the next three and a half months. Because that is pretty much their battle lines in a nutshell. Trudeau's you know, Trudeau's out of touch and it's costing us all versus this government has no plan. Uh, you should worry about all the things that you should worry about. Um, again, I mean, according to the polls, uh, the liberals have a lot of a lot of ground to make up here uh, with the conservatives uh, sort of hovering around 40 percent uh, with an election not maybe imminent, uh, you know, at fall of 2025 at this point is the date. Uh, meantime, the cons- uh, the NDP, uh, they're, you know, they're still here. Uh, they were talking about making Ottawa work for people. That's a kind of a normal one for the NDP, including uh, through finding ways to leverage their confidence and supply agreement with the Liberals to achieve tangible improvements to housing affordability and access to prescription medication. Pharmacare, of course, is one of the things that will be on the agenda this session as well. Mackenzie Gray is the national reporter for Global News covering Parliament, one of them, and he joins me now. Mackenzie, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on, Ben. This is always an interesting day because there's a few different things that happen when they when MPs come back after. It's not like the summer break that they come back from where it's been a long time. This is a pretty short one. So it's but you always it's pretty they telegraph what they want to do in this in this session. What was the mood like? How 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 are they how are they how do the liberals look? How do the Tories look this time well, around? There, there's no love lost between any of the parties. Uh, it's a six week break. I'm sure most Canadians would love to have that much time off. And most Canadians, if they came back from a six week break, would feel refreshed and maybe take a new, more positive approach to their job. But uh, that's not what we saw in the House of Commons today. This could be any dog days of the winter day that we'll see in the coming weeks and months of lots of bickering in the House of Commons, all parties really digging in and going after each other, even the bloc attacking the the Conservatives, the Liberals wondering if the Conservatives want to leave the United Nations, the Conservatives going after the Prime Minister for his vacations, Jagmeet Singh sounding like Pierre Polyev talking about things being broken. So no real surprises here in terms of 
how the tone of the day was, a tone uh, that was fairly nasty that I would expect is going to be continuing going forward. Uh, but the Liberals did make a fairly substantive announcement today, Ben, on housing, uh, which we have new polling out today from uh, Global News. Uh, Ipsos did polls for us that basically say the top three issues for Canadians, inflation, interest rates, cost of groceries, and of course, housing. The Liberals are announcing today that post-secondary institutions can access uh, up to $15 billion worth of cheap government loans to be able to build student housing on campus. That was one of the things, a a cap on international students that they dealt with over the winter break. Uh, So they recognize that housing is an issue, uh, but certainly they might be a day late and many billions of dollars short in being able to solve that crisis in time for an election. Yeah, I mean, this one's been been a long time problem, right? Obviously, there wasn't enough housing to house the number of new students who were coming in. Uh, This sounds like a decent idea to try to, you know, encourage uh, institutions to build housing, build purpose-built housing for their for their students. But you're right, it's not going to happen uh, before 2025 if we have an election at the latest possible date. Yeah, I mean, look, you talk to any of our, our the housing experts, and, and when I chat with them for the stories that we do at Global National, they say, at a minimum, even if it's the best idea possible when it comes to housing, it's going to take two years before there's any tangible impact felt in the housing market. And that goes for really any of the things that the Liberals have done, like removing the uh, GST off of purpose-built rental, things that Lots of experts been in the field have been applauding not just that program, but one like they did today, things that they've been calling on the Liberal government to do. There's been lots of applause from the academics and folks who follow the sector uh, closely for Sean Frazier and the ideas he's put forward. But the problem for the Liberals is, you know, houses are not mushrooms. They don't spring up quickly and they need them to spring up quickly if the cost of rent is going to come down, if the cost of houses is going to come down or at least stabilize like the prime minister and the finance minister have said their goal is. Uh, and if they don't, that's going to be something that Pierre Polyev is going to continue to attack the Liberals on. And, you know, one thing Polyev does have is some authenticity on this issue. He was talking well before he was the Conservative leader in the House of Commons, going back to 2020, the, the absolute latest, saying housing is a big issue. People cannot afford to be able to live the life that their parents did before. And that issue has only kind of exploded even more in the co- post-COVID period. Yeah, it was interesting to to listen to the opening questions today. First of all, both opening questions for question period in 2024 were in French, which was interesting. Uh, you know, Quebec will be a big battleground in the next election, I think, and all parties recognize that. But Polyev, of course, back at his usual tactic of, A, trying to portray the, the prime minister as being out of touch because of his uh, his Christmas vacation to Jamaica, and also hammering away on affordability issues, which seem to have been the bread and butter now for, for several sessions for, for this Conservative Party and this leader specifically. Yeah, and there's no chance that those things are going to change. Like As I was mentioning, those are the top issues for Canadians. Uh, and Pierre Polyev's been on the money in terms of figuring out where Canadians are and how they feel. The challenge is for the Liberals to get Mr. Polyev to say more than what he has said already. And what he has said has been fairly minimal in terms of policy ideas, in terms of what he would do. You know, the newest thing he's brought up is saying, well, I would link immigration to the number of houses we're going to be able to build. Well, if that's the case, uh, the number of immigrants that we're going to be bringing in, whether they be temporary or permanent, is going to need to be cut substantially. You know, we saw a 7% decline last year in numbers from the CMHC, the Federal Housing Agency that looks over housing data like this, uh, saying that there's been a a fairly substantial drop in the number of houses uh, that are being started to be constructed. And, you know, when I've spoken with the chief economist over there, their expectation is that that trend is going to continue forward into this year 
in a higher interest rate environment, it just doesn't make sense for a lot of builders to get into the game right now. They'll wait for rates to come back down. And when rates do come down, it will take time for builders to be able to react, have plans move through the municipal zoning process, things like that. So there's a lot of structural issues within the Canadian housing market that have been persistent for many, many years, that it wasn't just the Liberals' fault. It was Conservatives before then, and also municipalities and provinces that play a large role in these things as well. All levels of government have clearly failed to be able to provide adequate, affordable housing for Canadians across the country. But if you listen to Pierre Polyev, it's just the Prime Minister. And the Liberals have clearly not, not done enough to be able to push back on that idea and make it so that there is equal amounts of blame to be shared across the board. But if I'm the Liberals, the goal that I would have going into this session is trying to figure out what Pierre Polyev's stance on not only housing things are, but on what cuts he would make. He says he wants to balance the budget. That's its inflationary deficits that Justin Trudeau is running that have caused inflation. Well, what $40 billion annually are you going to cut to balance the budget? And on top of that, Pierre Polyev says he wants to cut taxes. Well, what cut taxes are you going to be able to cut? How are you going to pay for those things? Oh, you want to spend 2% of GDP on defense? Sounds great. That's billions and billions and billions of more dollars for the military. Where are you going to get that money from? So there's a lot of holes right now in terms of what Pierre Polyev's economic vision of the country is. The Liberals need to attempt to try and capitalize that if they're going to dig back on that nine-point hole, the latest data that we have today on what the horse race numbers are between the Conservatives and the Liberals. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, opposition leaders never actually have to present, uh, you know, never actually have to lay out their plans until an election comes along. But you're right, there are some things. I mean, this has now been going on for quite some time. And and this, and now that we're heading towards potentially an election in the next 18 months or so, uh, you know, Pierre Polyev is now being asked to sort of elaborate on what does it mean to to balance the budget. And you're right. And, you know, what happens to dental care? What happens to programs that Canadians may care about at this point in time? Uh, but the Liberals, you're right, have been had a very hard time. They were on the back foot for most of the last year. Uh, at least in question period, uh, it feels like today they they were slightly they played a slightly different tact. Now this is all just you know theater in some sense. It doesn't really matter to most of us, but it is interesting to see them try to sort of uh, extract more concrete statements out of the opposition leader. Well, that's the only way back for them. Look, as we were talking about with the housing and economic policies, you know, there's a couple of things they can do on that front. You know, pray that uh, Tiff Macklem and the Bank of Canada reduce interest rates and reduce them fairly quickly. So people who have to renew their mortgages, which uh, they're going to be renewing them to higher rates, regardless of what happens with the bank, but lower them at the best possible rate possible. Uh, And because that's the thing, you know, a lot of Canadians are feeling the pinch. And, you know, when you think back to when the Liberals were first elected, you know, 2015, you know, one of the kind of benchmark things I think about is the the child benefit. They raised Mm -hmm. that substantially. They talked about making it means tested. Their focus was on making sure that the poorest Canadians got the most help possible. You remember the line back in the 2015 election uh, that Justin Trudeau used fairly consistently was to Stephen Harper, well, I'm getting these child benefit checks, you're getting these child benefit checks, we're rich, we don't need them. I'm paraphrasing, but that was the idea. That lens is how the Liberals have taken their economic focus going forward. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that, trying to target uh, programs for the Canadians who need it the most. But that was the same lens that they viewed inflation through. And it was clear that the inflation issue was not just impacting the lowest uh, Canadians in terms of income, but Canadians all the way up, folks who were making much more than what the, the government would consider to be a low-income Canadian. And they forgot to target those people in terms of their messaging and how they would try and help and focus and deal with that. And now they're trying to play catch-up on that. But right. in that interim period, at least a year, Pierre Pauly have capitalized on those people. And we're seeing those folks. Give a look at the Conservatives right now, and we'll be a long road back for the Liberals to try and get those voters into their camp.
Mackenzie Gray is Global News' national reporter covering Parliament Hill. We're talking about the return today. MPs were back on the Hill, back in the House. Question period resumed today. So as usual, um, you can guess what everyone was focused on. The Conservatives focused very much on cost of living issues. I'm trying to portray uh, the Prime Minister as being out of touch, uh, specifically with this latest Christmas vacation of his to visit, uh, stay with friends in Jamaica, at a pretty lavish place. Mackenzie, I don't want to waste too much time on this one, because, it, but it's going to come up again this week, because I gather uh, the interim uh, or or the interim ethics commissioner is going to be asked about this one tomorrow. I, I, I wonder about this. One. I think it was just the optics of it. Here we are eight years in and the prime minister's, you know, jetting off again to spend a, an expensive Christmas vacation, albeit one paid for apparently by people he knows. But still, the optics of it are, are going to be uh, are going to be difficult. And it's no surprise that Poliev began today by mentioning it right off the bat in English and in French. They're trying to portray the prime minister as someone who's out of touch on this issue. You know, the, the pushback that liberals would get is that this $84,000 vacation that a family friend, a billionaire family friend of the prime minister gave to them. Well, they say we raised this with the ethics commissioner and said it was no problem. You know, we've heard this line before, both from conservatives and liberals. We cleared it with the ethics commissioner. It's OK. But you're the prime minister. You got to think about this. You make over $300,000 a year. You've got lots of money. Just go on Expedia and book a hotel of your own somewhere else and go hang out with your family friend. Don't make this an issue for you. How many times does the prime minister's office and the prime minister have to defend a vacation that he's gone on? That is the kind of things that the liberals don't want any oxygen on. And they have to stop making mistakes like this if they want to get back in the race instead of putting all of their focus onto the economy and things they're going to deal with that. These are distractions the conservatives love to have on this, but it's an unforced error from the liberals. No one made the prime minister do this other than himself. Even if a friend offers you that, maybe next time, you know what? Just find some of your own accommodations and see them for dinner after once you've stayed at your own hotel. I noticed, uh, I mean, you covered the caucus last week and so on. There was uh, the MP Ken McDonald from Newfoundland who sort of, I guess, in an interview brought up the idea that maybe it was time for a leadership review. Ministers today were asked about this very issue. I believe Anita Anand, Christia Freeland and others, uh, Mark Miller, who's a close friend of the prime minister's, were asked these questions about, do you have faith in in the prime minister? Do you see an ebbing of, of that support? I mean, I know it's very... Publicly known will say a word uh, out of line, except for maybe Ken McDonald, who attracted very quickly. But are you seeing any doubt amongst the Liberal caucus with, you know, given this vacation stuff again? I don't think the vacation stuff is, is going to waver them on that. I think that no. there, you know, some some private eye rolling about uh, the decision making process there. But there certainly has been a refocus on the economy, uh, which is kind of what we saw not at this cabinet retreat, but the last cabinet retreat in the summer. There was a cabinet retreat in PEI. A caucus in London, Ontario, that's where they announced a number of different housing measures of that caucus retreat. They got an earful there about what they needed to focus on when it comes to housing uh, and when it comes to the economy. I think they've been able to refocus on that and, and shuffle things a bit more in that direction. Uh, and I'll say, look, you know, they left in good spirits. You know, remember before Christmas, there was like a marathon vote that the Conservatives forced uh, about all kinds of different issues, line by line, votes on the budget. Uh, the Conservatives, you know, I, I spent plenty of time in the House of Commons watching those votes from the gallery. You know, the Conservatives were barely there. They were in terrible spirits. Uh, the Liberals were there basically in full force, the Prime Minister having a good time, having conversations. So the Liberals did leave uh, Ottawa on a good note. Uh, I don't necessarily think they're in those same happy spirits today, but they certainly are in a lot better place where they were in the summer when they were down a lot worse in the polls. But they have a long way to go to get things back to at least make it a competitive election whenever it may be. Uh, Mackenzie, thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot, Ben. Chat soon. 
There's actually a song out there called Lone Rhinoceros by Adrian Ballou from back in 1982. There it is. Because, of course, now we're going to talk about rhinos. I've never seen one in the wild. I've only ever seen one, obviously, uh, at a zoo. The northern white rhino, though, which I've never seen, is the world's most critically endangered animal. Only two remain. Both of them are female, a mother and daughter. The last male died in 2018. Nijin and her daughter Fatou are at a conservancy uh, in Kenya. They are cared for around the clock and protected by armed workers, if you could imagine. Mum is 35, will be 35 this year. Daughter is 24. They're expected to live to about 40. So you can see that time, time is is ebbing here for this subspecies, the northern white rhino. Uh, scientists and conservationists, though, are hoping that IVF, in vitro fertilization, in vitro fertilization, rather, can be used to save uh, the northern white rhino, again, driven to the brink by poachers who've hunted them for their horns. And that hope was given a big boost recently when it was discovered that a 13-year-old southern white rhino had become pregnant using IVF. She unfortunately died after contracting a bacterial infection while in captivity in the same place as the other two, by the way, in Kenya. But her short pregnancy was proof that it could work. Never before had a rhino been impregnated via IVF. So now the two remaining northern white females, they can't reproduce. So they, they can't be the surrogates here. But scientists have kept genetic material from the northern white rhino um, so the hope now is that southern white rhino females will be able to act as those surrogates to help the northern whites survive. Here is Kenyan conservationist Samuel Mutsaya. Whatever it takes, whatever humanly possible, to make sure that these animals do not uh, disappear from the face of the earth. Biorescue is the group trying to save the northern white rhino. They're planning to use southern white rhinos uh, to act as surrogates, as I mentioned. Thomas Hildebrandt is the head scientist at Biorescue. He's also an expert in wildlife reproduction based at the Leibniz Institute of Zoo and Wildlife Research in Berlin. But he's in Switzerland tonight and he joins me now. Uh, Thomas, thank you. Yeah, hi. It, what did, what did, this? I mean, certainly there's been a lot of attention paid to this uh, to this story. I've seen it right around the world. But tell me a bit about about Biorescue's work because you've been doing you've been doing this for quite some time. Yes, uh, officially Biorescue was uh, opened up as a project in 2019. But we're working with northern white rhinos since the early 2000s. We have collected semen uh, about two decades ago. We collected semen, for example, at the San Diego White Animal Park in Duokralovo. And um, that is actually one of our backbones that we uh, have uh, still male gametes, uh, even all the males are disease, deceased. Right. So listeners understand right now, uh, if they're not familiar with the, with the northern white rhino, there are just two left, right? Yes. Yeah. So then a little bit background. So when we started, there were uh, about nine uh, of them left and, and uh, three of them lived at, in San Diego and uh, six of them lived in Duokralova. And then uh, yeah, stepwise, uh, we lost one individual after the other. Right. And uh, actually, it was a very depressing situation because we tried everything to uh, motivate them nat for natural breeding, but nothing worked. And then actually we uh, did a little attempt to use assisted reproduction, but that uh, was based on artificial insemination. It also failed. And then in 2008, uh, the last uh, four animals from Duokralovo were moved to Kenya to all Jeta, And... Uh, 
there was only one infertile female left in Czech Republic and uh, in San Diego only Nola was still alive. So that was a, a situation where we thought that's the end. Um, and then uh, there was a Nobel Prize in 2012. And uh, that Nobel Prize uh, given to Yamanaka and Gordon showed that you can transform cells, simple cells uh, derived from skin samples, uh, can be transformed into iPS cells, that means induced pluripotent stem cells. Mm. And these cells can do everything. So they can be transformed in, in, in kidneys or liver, but also they can be transformed in sperm and eggs. Really? And that actually uh, was a turning point because then everything made much more sense uh, because we had these cryobank with these uh, biomaterial from the deceased animals. So what we had to do is then to develop a program which involves assisted reproduction, oocyte collection, in vitro production of embryos, and then also the in vitro gametogenesis. That means we can also add gametes from individuals which are not more alive. And this program is called BioRescue. It has uh, uh, many sci uh, international scientists in the consortium. And we um, really working stepwise uh, to achieving our goal. And what we reported last week I think that was uh, the, a very important milestone because we could show that oocyte collection, in vitro fertilization, embryo culture, cryopreservation of these products, and then finally the transfer in surrogates, all these, these complex procedures, they're working. We can produce new life. And now uh, I can state that uh, I'm very convinced that in two years' time, we will have the first pure northern white rhino carp on the ground. Wow. Uh, with the help of Kenya Wildlife Service, uh, we uh, really achieved a lot. Uh, we have these uh, local partners in Olpecheta. We have all the international partners from Duokradovazu, from Aventea in Italy, from the Padua University, from the Osaka University, right. from the Max Delbrück Center. So it is a huge uh, group, uh, but everyone in this group is characterized that it is infected by the idea to achieve what we plan to do. Right, which is to save the northern white rhino. So listeners understand in this case, uh, the breakthrough with the IVF and the surrogacy happened with a southern white rhino. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, you have to know that these two remaining individuals from the northern white rhinos, both are infertile. So both right. have really damaged uteri. Uh, uh, a mother and daughter too, right? They're a mother and daughter? Mother and daughter, yeah. The mother was born in 1989 and the daughter was a so-called millennium baby, the uh, last northern white rhino which was ever born. That happened in 2000. And her names are Fatu, the daughter, and Najin, the, the mother. Mm -hmm. And these two individuals have severe reproductive pathology. However, Fatu still produce viable oocytes to the program. Mm -hmm. And we have collected these oocytes already 15 times. And we have produced out of her oocytes 30 pure northern white rhino embryos. Okay. And this... With this new success, we uh, we are now uh, uh, starting a completely new uh, approach. We will use uh, southern white rhino surrogates as a uh, recipient for northern white rhino embryos. 
they're and they're close enough together as a species that it, that this would work it's a good a very good question and academically uh, it is a little bit difficult to answer however we have a very nice event from the from the past uh, from the history where a northern white rhino female was or has mated with a southern white rhino bull and produced a hybrid her name was nazi uh, that happened actually in England in, in the safari park of Mosley. And the baby was then born in Dua and lived a life until 26. Uh, but she also developed tumors in her reproductive tract, so that we had to euthanize her. But this uh, event shows us that there is a matching between these two subspecies. Even they are separated for more than 200,000 years. There is this uh, famous rift valley, the 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 barrier between the north and the south of Africa. And uh, and the northern white rhino lives on the northern side of the Rift Valley, and the southern white rhino lives mainly in Savannah on the southern, white, uh, southern side of the Rift Valley. Thomas Hildebrandt is BioRescue's head scientist. He's an expert in wildlife reproduction. We're talking about a huge breakthrough, the first time that a rhino uh, has been impregnated via in vitro fertilization. And this offers a new hope that the endangered northern white rhino, there's only two of them left on the planet, might be saved from extinction. Uh, because in this way, uh, there is genetic material that's available. It's been kept by BioRescue. They could use southern white rhino females as surrogates to help the northern white rhino survive. Um, Thomas, it was mentioned, of course, that uh, Najin and Fatu, the mother and daughter, are both, uh, I think, in their 30s and early 20s. It would be really important, according to you, I think, that any new northern white rhino calf be socialized with those two right it would be so time is important here yeah yeah you have to know that uh, genes are the the, the major uh, platform to build an organism but social heritage especially in these advanced uh, mammals is a very important element for being an rhino and if the northern white rhino never learns how to speak northern white rhino language or how to eat uh, because it is completely different to the southern white rhino culture then uh, we create a kind of nutrient which might not be capable really to survive in the natural environment it looks like a northern white rhino but a big piece of a northern white rhino is missing right. and that puts quite a lot of uh, time pressure on the program to achieve this uh, first calf or several calves as soon as possible so they can learn from the last two of their kind how to live as a northern white rhino these two northern white rhinos were both born in captivity but they were socialized with this wild caught northern white rhinos. So they grew up uh, with this language which was spoken in Sudan and in, uh, in Uganda. So these uh, rhinos still have this memory and they can give that to the newborn calves when they are there. And that means time is really an important element in this entire program. And we uh, now with this achievement believe or no, or whatever you can say, uh, that we will have this uh, success in two years, two and a half years' time. Yeah. It is uh, very interesting that uh, the northern white rhinos 
got uh, extinct or nearly extinct by human impact. And we lost our surrogate or pregnant surrogate uh, due to El Nino, which had a lot of rainfall, uh, causes a lot of rainfalls in Kenya and caused mudslides and released bacteria which were dormant uh, in the soil for hundreds of years. And they killed our surrogate with a little right. new baby inside. Right, Kuro, is that... Uh, the, 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 yeah, so, Kuro was. Yeah, right, right. Which, which was, yeah, that was unfortunate. I mean, I guess in this sense, um, you, it would have been interesting to see how that surrogacy would have progressed, right? Yeah, uh, we know the, all the stages uh, of a rhino pregnancy, which is uh, 16 months. 16 uh, months. Wow. 16 months, yeah. There's a, there's a lot, lot of meat has to grow because yes. a baby is born with uh, 45 kilograms, 50 kilograms. Right. However, uh, the, the most critical phase was already past of this baby. So it was a proper placentation uh, present when we open up the uterus and uh, the baby was already uh, in a stage of an early fetus. That means all the organ systems were already established and they had only to grow further. So uh, we are extremely confident that this stage would make it to the end if we would not lose us to these nasty bacteria, Clostridia. Right. I, I mean, I imagine there must be potential complications here, but it does feel like we're uh, at the precipice, perhaps, of seeing something that looked destined to disappear. The white northern rhino looked destined to disappear. Uh, now that may not happen, and that, that must be exciting for you. Yes, uh, I think the entire team was really uh, uh, extremely, I would say, relieved that we finally uh, uh, reached that point because... Uh, uh, I was felt a little bit like a priest praying that we will have success. I know that this technology will work, but uh, there is a lot of critics too because it, the entire program requires a lot of resources. And that means that people asking questions, is it really necessary? Why we should do that? Why we should bring these northern white rhino back? It is nearly extinct, but it, you have to know that it's a very important landscape architect in Central Africa. It's a keystone species, which provides uh, uh, environmental factors for 100 or thousands of other species, including plants, insects, and so on. So I was always convinced we will one day we will uh, achieve that, uh, that we lost our surrogate with this early pregnancy is really a, a disadvantage. However, the proof was given, and now we start with the northern vitrino embryos. Right, and I guess the next step now is to is to move ahead then and find another surrogate within the white, uh, the southern white rhino population and then proceed. Uh, actually, we did that already. Oh, so already the, bio, okay. yes. the biorescue team uh, is not wasting time. So uh, we were two weeks ago. We were in Kenya. We uh, found a new teaser bull, which was carefully uh, elected by the Kenya Wildlife Service and all paid. We found a new surrogate. We built a new enclosure far away from the wrist of mudslides. Uh, all that was done in a, in a heroic time period. And uh, therefore, we, we are quite sure that we can continue with the embryo transfers end of May, beginning of June. So we have to test our teaser bull one more time to make sure he's 
sterile mm. and he is mating our soul gates because we need that. Uh, working with wild rhinos, you can't ask them when have your ovulation happened. No. Uh, so you need the teaser boy to mm. tell us that. And then six days later, we will transfer the embryo. Oh, so so the, the, the bull acts as kind of, as kind of the uh, the alarm, right? The sort of the smoke alarm for... for, for... I, I would say an indicator, an not indicator. an alarm. But an keep indicator. it a little yes. bit more positive. Yes, okay. An indicator makes sense. Thomas, uh, fascinating. Thank you so much. Uh, good luck. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. 